Let's do it. Let's do it. Broadcasting from around the world, you're listening to The First 100, a podcast on how founders acquired their first 100 paying customers. Here's your host, Hadi Rodwan. David, good to have you on the show. How are you doing today? Great, Hadi. I'm excited to talk to you. I'm as well. I'm uh, very excited about this uh, episode, which is it's quite different than what I usually record. We're now talking to David Dodson, who's an author, a successful serial entrepreneur, a board member of more than 40 companies, a former McKinsey consultant, and an active investor. So you have everything uh, under your belt. You're also a lecturer at Stanford School of a business and uh, you have a book which we'll talk about. I'm very excited to tackle a lot of interesting topics with you. But first, tell me a little bit about your history. How were you able to do all of these things? Because we see people, either they're entrepreneurs or consultants or investors. You're doing <laughs> almost everything and a lecturer as well. <laughs> I think it just means I'm old, okay? Okay. <laughs> I have done a lot, but there's a common thread, which is that I've been fascinated and interested in you know, the early stages of management. That's where I feel like I've done my best job as a manager, as an entrepreneur. And the course that I teach at Stanford is all about how to help people who are early in their career, how they can get up to speed faster. I would say 99% of my investing is all with early stage entrepreneurs. And when I talk to them and they seek my advice, what I always say is, I want to try to get you to year three in 18 months. Because the difference between that is oftentimes the difference between success and failure. You know, if you've raised a certain amount of money, you are feeling that burn rate every single day. If you bought a company, for example, and your competitors are trying to get after your customers, every single day matters. Yeah, absolutely. Take us back to your early days before you were an entrepreneur, yeah. back to school. What was things that flared up in your personality, in your discipline that, you know, has affected how your career has been shaped? I think my career was mostly shaped in terms of being an entrepreneur, an early stage investor by my father, my grandfather. So if I can even go back a little bit earlier, my dad had a farm equipment manufacturing company in rural Colorado. The closest town to us was a population of 350. So we were out in the middle of nowhere. At one point, he had a substantial company and he basically went bankrupt. And he went bankrupt because of policy changes in Washington, D.C. Meanwhile, my grandfather had run one of the largest coal mines in the U.S., and his coal mines went under because there was a new type of coal discovered in Wyoming that was harder and burned hotter, and all those coal mines closed down. I didn't know it at the time, Hadi, but what I have come to realize is that that didn't dissuade me about entrepreneurship, but I didn't like the idea that my father and grandfather, who I think were very good business people, had their businesses all to basically fail because of things that were outside their control and markets that were outside their control. So I've spent my career just fascinated with the notion of implementation and how you get things done. And when I started working on the book, that was really a result of giving advice and counsel to other people. But I got fascinated with companies like Walmart, where Sam Walton, he didn't invent the department store. And he was 50 years behind Target and JCPenney and Kmart, right? And he clobbered them. 
Well, he didn't clobber them because he had x-ray vision. He clobbered them because he implemented better. You know, a more modern day example is Facebook or Meta, right? So, you know, we think about Facebook and Zuckerberg sort of inventing. He didn't invent anything. You know, MySpace and other collaborating platforms were already in existence. They were funded by Benchmark. They were located in Silicon Valley. He actually had sort of everything going against him. He just accidentally invented it in a dorm room with no funding. But what the team at Facebook did is they were so much better at implementation that they took those ideas and they clobbered everybody else, as we know. By the way, if I can just give you one other example, which I think is the most remarkable example, Apple. And I got so sucked into the story of Steve Jobs because what he's known for is a person who kind of could see around corners and invented markets. Turns out that's not true. He didn't invent the personal computer. He didn't invent the mouse. He didn't invent the interface. He didn't invent portable music. All those were invented by other people. But Steve Jobs was so good at the five skills that I describe in my book, The Manager's Handbook, about building a team, prioritization. And so I just am obsessed with this idea that you have a great idea and your listeners have a product and they're trying to get the first 100 customers. But if you can't implement, if you don't know how to get things done, someone else is going to come right behind you and take all those customers and perhaps your great idea. Amazing. I want to double click on these five simple steps in one second. But before that, what have you learned from your consulting role? And how did you bring that learning into your entrepreneurial role? So my consulting at McKinsey was probably the smallest part of my resume, but it had a profound impact because I went there right out of undergrad. So I went to Stanford undergrad, studied economics, went to work for McKinsey and Company for a while, and then went back to business school at Stanford. And what McKinsey taught me was discipline. It's a different firm now, but it's still, I'm sure, a very disciplined firm, but it was probably a tenth the size it is now. And the culture there within McKinsey was so deep. And there was a certain way that you did things. And if you didn't want to do those things, then go somewhere else. Didn't want to do it in that way, then go somewhere else. And it worked. The fundamental principle behind that was we are disciplined. We have certain rules that we follow. We follow them. And as a result, we produce an excellent product. And that kind of combination of a a strong culture, discipline, and an excellent product, I didn't realize it at the time, but had a really big impact on how I saw business and how I saw running organizations going forward. Makes a lot of sense. I come from a consulting background from PwC, mm-hmm. and it's a boring business, right? They're very process oriented. Yep. They know what they're doing, but you know, there's no creativity at all. But you learn the discipline, the commitment, being able to look at risk factors that they've plugged the holes for, which in your business, eventually, when you don't have mentors or people who are guiding you, you will make mistakes along the way. If we fast forward to your entrepreneurial business, tell us a little bit what it was and how were your early days to find the right customers? So I got my early experience as an entrepreneur by buying small companies. So I would buy companies from their founders. What was different than finding your first 100 customers in those instances is they were already up and running companies, but I had to learn how to become a manager very, very quickly because everybody else, there was a vacuum that was left when the founder left and I had to step in and there was no, uh, there was no opportunity to sort of take my time and learn how to be a, uh, an entrepreneur and build the company up brick by brick. The company was all already running. That forced me to learn how to be a CEO very quickly, which then helped me later on 
when I had my first real substantial startup, which was, it's a for-profit company, but it's more thought of as a, as a nonprofit, Sanku, where we invented a device, myself and Felix Brooks Church, we invented a device that is transforming how uh, corn flour or maize is uh, fortified and milled in Africa. And it's changing the health outcomes of currently seven and a half million people in East Africa. But that was a grind to get those first hundred customers. Yeah, makes a lot of sense, especially in the agricultural world, I guess. Having said that, you mentioned a very interesting um, set of examples of very famous people who became successful. But the story is always lies uh, somewhere hidden behind the team they've built and other efficiencies. If you today are a startup founder, the expectation is that you're also a manager. Mm-hmm. And then you should be able to know how to lead, how to manage, how to uh, read your financial statements, how to operate, how to build products. For someone starting, what advice would you give them to bridge that gap between being a founder and a manager? So one of the best pieces of advice I got very early in my career was from a man named Kevin Landry, who built TA Associates into what is now one of the largest venture capital private equity firms in the world. And he told me very early in my career, he said, a lot of people mistake becoming a manager as the hardest step, but that's not so. What he told me was that becoming a manager of managers, because if you're just managing four or five people, you can kind of muscle your way through it. Or as my colleague at Stanford, Graham Weaver says, hit the more button. You just work harder, stay later, work on the weekends. But what kills so many entrepreneurs is they don't realize that that's not scalable. And as soon as you're managing managers, you can't make it up by hitting the more button. And so that transition to becoming a manager, if you will, or leading an organization versus a doer is very, very difficult for a lot of entrepreneurs and it stalls them out. Well, that begins with being very good at hiring. And there was this fascinating study. It was 7,000 managers self-reported, self-reported that 46% of their own hires failed within the first 18 months. Amazing, right? And 19%, only 19%, excuse me, achieved unequivocal success. Meanwhile, there's a lot of evidence to suggest that the first five people that you hire is the most important thing you do as an entrepreneur. If you combine those, the importance of hiring your first five people and how bad we are at hiring, anyone who wants 100 customers should be thinking really hard about how do I get good at hiring and how do I get good at hiring fast? Because imagine the competitive advantage you have if instead of a 46% failure rate, you have a 20% failure rate, for example, which by the way, the best people do have that kind of a or success rate, I should say. This is a very interesting um, statistics that you shared. But the question is, if I'm a founder today, I have uh, time versus resources. So I want Mm -hmm. to get the best people, but the best people will not probably join a startup because the brand is not known or I cannot afford them. So then I would optimize for time and I would get the best next available option, which in many instances could be a good hire, could be a bad hire. So if you were to be starting from scratch, what tactical frameworks would you use to reduce that uh, rate from 40 to 20%? Exactly. So look, most people hire wrong. They hire based on someone's resume. They look at what they did, what school they went to, how old they were. And those tend to be pretty expensive people because they're out to market based on their resume. But the best people, hands down, 
are the people that are taking a step up. Because if you step back and you think about it, if you are highly talented and doing well in your career, you don't want to do the same thing. You don't want to take a half step up. You don't want to do the same thing. You want to take a step up. So now the the challenge becomes, if I don't have someone's resume that I can look at, how can I identify that fantastic talent that is excited about being a startup that frankly is not as expensive as a more seasoned entrepreneur? That was one of the challenges when I wrote the book, Heidi, which was how do you identify people and how do you enter for outcome? Can you give us an example of a framework that you would use in your book that would be beneficial to our listeners? Yeah. So, Hadi, one of the things that I stress is having a hiring scorecard. And what most people do is when they go hire, they use gut feel or some version of gut feel. And if I referenced a very quick story, a book that was written by Malcolm Gladwell, and he talks about how Neville Chamberlain, who was the prime minister of Britain at the time, was trying to assess Hitler, who was the chancellor of Germany, of course. He flew out to Germany, met with him, came back, said, we're all okay as a nation and as a world, because I met with Hitler, I looked him in the eye, and he said he shook my hand with his double-handed handshake that he reserves only for his closest relationships. And he said, this is a man I can trust. Okay, well, we know how that played out. Meanwhile, Winston Churchill was the one person who assessed Hitler perfectly, but he never met Hitler. And what Malcolm Gladwell points out is that while Neville Chamberlain was relying on his gut feel, which was wrong, as was true with most leaders at the time, Winston Churchill was looking at data. And that's the fundamental difference of when you're hiring for outcomes that I describe in the book, is you begin with a hiring scorecard, which is what are the outcomes that you want and how are you going to find that out? And then you look for data to support or reject those notions. And a scorecard's very hard to put together. It takes hours to do it right. But once you do it, you can fast forward through the hiring process. And a really good friend of mine, Paul English, who was one of the co-founders of Kayak.com or Kayak, the travel site, he has convinced me, and I have him in class and students as well, what an incredible advantage it is in the startup world of hiring if you have a fast hiring process, especially in today's world. If you're starting with a hiring scorecard, while it takes a little bit more time on the front end, on the back end, you can fast forward through identifying talent and bringing them on board quickly, which a lot of times is the difference between getting a great hire and an okay hire. So essentially, with a hiring scorecard, you standardize the process, and then you know the inputs, the outputs, and the outcomes eventually. And then you could you know, fast pace the growth of the company without making errors along the way. Yeah, and Hadi, one of the things that is also included in the book is just techniques on how to do it. Because what, I wrote the book that I wish someone had handed me when I first became a CEO. And I needed sort of paint-by-numbers approach to things. I didn't want someone to talk at 10,000 feet. I needed to get stuff done in the morning. And so, for example, talk about the three Ps, previous, prior, and plan. So if I'm interviewing you and I ask you a question about what was your revenue last year, and you said, well, my revenue was a million dollars up by 15%. Well, okay, now I know what it is compared to last year. That's prior. But I want to know what your peers did because maybe your peers were not up 15%. All your peers were up 25% and compared to plan. So just when you're interviewing, think three Ps, prior, plan, peers. That's one example. I have multiple examples in that particular second book. Amazing advice. If we move now to the firms that you've advised and you've seen them grow their first 100 paying customers, what impressed you the most about certain leaders that have made it past that 100? Did you see any tactics, best practices that they've deployed that we could share or double click on as listeners? First, they were very, very determined with their priorities. 
They knew what they needed to get done. And if there's ever a time in a business's life cycle where there's lots of shiny objects and dumpster fires that can distract you, it's in that first initial kind of 18 months. So the best people said, this is what I need to do. We're not going to work on anything else. We're going to work on this. That was the first thing. Aligned with that, of course, is they were very good with managing their time and other people's time. That's the first thing. The second is they had great first hires, which we already talked about. But the last thing is this obsession with quality. And too often, people bring a product out. And yes, it's okay to have a you know a minimally viable product to just test in the marketplace. But in the end, leaders that fail tend to over-rely on sales and sales techniques instead of what really matters, which is, do you have a product that is solving a real problem and is high quality? And if you were to look back on all of the leaders that you and entrepreneurs that you really admire over time, I'm not talking about the last 18 months, I'm talking about the last you know 180 years. I promise you that every single one of them was obsessed with quality. And what I challenge people on, Hadi, is I say, which would you fear more from your competitors? A competitor that has a good product and a great sales force or a competitor that has a good sales force and an awesome product? And of course, it's the, it's the latter because you can't win over time. And especially in today's marketplace, which is different than it was 25 years ago, where information travels you know, literally light speed. Okay. And so if you have a product that's not meeting people's needs or a product that's failing, everybody's going to know about it by the time you close business that day. Amazing. Your book is called five simple steps to build a team, stay focused, make better decisions and crush your competition. We talked about the build a team section. Can you give us your masterclass version on the remaining three? What are key takeaways we can have? Well, it's interesting that we've actually unearthed them in the conversation, but it, it sort of makes sense. But they were, the first one is commitment to building a team. The second is a fanatical custodian of time, which we were just talking about. The third one is a willingness to seek and take advice. And what I like about those people is they think about it in two ways. One, most of the problems that they're facing are not new. Someone else has either faced that or they have a lot of pattern recognition around it. And they think to themselves, okay, I can have pride and ownership and I can come up with the answer all by myself, or I can get the answer in a 15th the time and increase the odds that I get the right answer. And so those are people who are very good at seeking and taking advice. And in the book, I, I lay out how do you find mentors and how do you get advice from them and how do you manage those relationships well? So that's the third one. The fourth one, which we talked about, is this ability to set and adhere to priorities. And one of my business heroes, Steve Jobs, there's no one on the planet that was more determined in terms of setting and adhering to priorities. And look, of course, what he built. I mean, now it's the first $3 trillion company in the world. And then this last thing, obsession with quality. And that thread th goes through all of the entrepreneurs that we admire. I love the third one, which is finding mentors that would guide you along the way. In our world, how do you find a mentor that you, know, you could rely on and help you along the way? Because this is the, the hardest part. For example, for me, I knew that I need to find a mentor. Mm -hmm. I've never was able to do that unless you either have to pay a lot of money and then the good mentors are not accessible. But the problem is that the books that are indirectly a mentorship, some of them are not very practical. So what's your take on this? Well, again, I wanted to write the book that I wish someone had handed me. So, And I was busy back then. I mean, I'm still busy, but I was busy back then. I didn't have time to read long books and so forth. So everything that I talk about, I try to do it in as few words as possible, 
you know, mindful of the the reader that I have as someone who's busy and t- they're trying to run an organization. They're trying to get their first hundred customers. So in terms of identifying a mentor, the first thing I do is I say, these are the characteristics that you should be looking for in a mentor and build a scorecard around it. For example, if you think about what are the problems that I'm likely to face or the opportunities that I'm going to try to take advantage of. You need to articulate that. And once you've done that, then you move beyond the who has a fancy resume and you know who has a name for themselves. And you identify people that have two aspects. One is objectivity. One of the great things about mentors and advisors is that they have objectivity that you don't have. The second is that they have this pattern recognition. Now you have a scorecard, you have a mission, you're looking for someone. So maybe you're not looking for the CEO of the big media company in London. Maybe you're actually looking for someone who runs this, who's a divisional manager of a trucking company, because they're the ones who are going to have the pattern recognition that you have. Then I talk a little bit about what mentors want out of the relationship and how you can be more interesting to them. And then finally, how do you structure a conversation? And it might seem so trivial, but I spend so much time when I'm talking to someone on the phone and I'm, let's say I have a 20 minute phone call with them. And we basically spend 16 minutes while they're describing the problem, leaving me only four minutes to offer whatever guidance I can. And I offer a different way to structure that. So you basically invert that in a way that you can get the information to the person very quickly so you can sit back and absorb 15 minutes of wisdom from this person. Which, by the way, Hadi has this really interesting sort of flywheel effect because when the mentor or the advisor gets off the phone, if they talk for three minutes and listen to you for, you know, 17 minutes, that's not a very fulfilling conversation. They're not offended by it, but it just wasn't rewarding. Whereas if they have a a phone call where they hung up the phone and they say, wow, you know, I really helped this person. That was really fun. I, I hope this person calls me again. So that's how I describe this whole notion of seeking and taking advice from mentors. And then there's a whole another section about boards of advisors and how you run those processes and so forth. But you combine it and what a secret weapon you have if you really have this uh, stable of people out there that you can access and help you to fast forward to the right decision and increase the chances that you make the right decision. Is there a mentor who advised you something that still resonates with you today? You remember it, you cherish it, you think this is the best advice you got? Well, it's going to be a little bit philosophical, but it's an easy question for me to answer. So my first boss out of business school was Irv Grosbeck. He was a professor at Stanford, but had built a huge company, media company before that. And I was honored to work for him. What he told me early on, uh, well beyond his own successes, he said, remember that we all drink from wells that we didn't dig and we're warmed by fires that we didn't kindle, which is his translation of something in Deuteronomy. And that is the strongest advice I've ever been given. And it's, it's especially noteworthy now in this point in my career, when I look back on my career and my successes, and I remember all of the fires that warmed me along the way that I didn't build. Amazing. Thank you for that. Is there a principle, life or business principle that you live by that has helped you in your journey? Yes. I am often faced with situations where people want lots of documentation, get the every semicolon in the right place, bring in the lawyers. And I've adopted a different path that has been really successful for me, which is I try to do business with people that I trust. And I don't worry so much about what was written down. And I focus on the handshake and the value of that handshake. And I have 100% gotten bamboozled a few times, but it's more than opened up doors for me 
with other people along the way. And so the open doors far exceeded the few times that I've been bamboozled. So that's just a way of doing business. But by the way, if you do that, or if you take that path, you have to act that way all the time. So there will be times when you have a handshake and things didn't go your way. You can point to page 42, paragraph you know 17 and get out of it. And you have to remind yourself when it's really hard. It's easy. It's easy when everything's going your way. You have to remind yourself, but that's not really what I said to Heidi, you know? And so I have to honor that. Amazing. If you were in the same room with a historical figure or a present figure of your choice, who would that be and what would you tell them? Well, what would I tell them or what would I ask them? Ask them. I think if it were a historical figure, I would love to talk to an everyday person in biblical times. I understand the temptation to talk to Muhammad or talk to Jesus. I'd just like to talk to an everyday person and understand how they viewed life back then. I would find that to be quite fascinating. And in today, if I could talk to a present-day figure, and, and I assume the nature of the question is that I would get straight answers, I would love to find out what's going on in Putin's head because I think you know, how he's thinking is going to have some profound impact on our world today. I realize that's a little bit kind of pedestrian and everyday, but I, I would love to know what's really going on there. Amazing. Uh, one last question. What's next for David? I'm really excited about the book and not because I want to sell copies of the book, but but one of the big insights that I got from this book is that when I realized that the secret to success was not so much, as I said, inventing something or seeing it around corners, which we learned from Sam Walton and Steve Jobs and you know Mark Zuckerberg, but being good at implementation. And that when I studied it, and I researched this for three years, I saw that it's really a, the culmination of a series of skills and sub-skills. Well, what that means is that means that it opens up leadership and entrepreneurship to people that might otherwise have viewed, well, I didn't go to the right school or I wasn't born in the right zip code or I don't look a certain way and therefore, you know, entrepreneurship or leadership isn't for me. I think that one of the wonderful things about this book is it's going to open up the doors to people who maybe thought that this wasn't a path that was available to them. And so I want to get this book into the hands of those people. Who do you prefer, an efficient manager on your team or an effective manager? I wonder if that's a false choice because I think to be effective, you have to be efficient. But in the end, of course, it would be effective. Thank you for your time, David. It was a pleasure having you on the show. How can people reach you? Hadi, you can reach me generally through my Stanford website. And then the book's available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or your local bookstore. My wife owns a bookstore, so I always have to say, or your local bookstore. Absolutely. We'll put all the notes that you just mentioned in, in the show notes of the podcast. Thank you again, and we wish you the best of luck. Hadi, I enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to The First 100. We hope it inspired you in your journey. If you're enjoying the podcast, please subscribe to our podcast on Apple iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or Spotify, and share it with a friend starting their entrepreneurship journey. Leave us a five-star review. Your support will help spread our podcast to more viewers.